0: The Hymn of Man is a poem written by an author, Swinburne. And in the final verses of a very lengthy poem, he writes these words. Thou art smitten, thou God, thou art smitten. Thy death is upon thee. And the love song of earth as thou diest resounds through the wind of her wings. Glory to man in the highest. The poet anticipates the death of God and praises glorifies the supremacy of man. Glory to man in the highest. Now such language for those who are believers is shocking. But in large measures, this is not uncommon for as a society and as a world, we have this Promethean sense, a sense of our vauntedness, of our greatness, and of God's smallness. We, as a world, sing glory to man in the highest. But over against the spirit, the spirit of the age which exalts man, scripture Always exalts God over men. In fact, scripture says, Glory to God in the highest. And in a sense, the prophet Amos declares glory to God in the highest because he exalts God. In fact, he stresses. The theme of the sovereignty of God. It does so in a number of ways. In particular by the expression the Lord God. When you read this prophecy of Amos throughout the book he refers to God as Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God. Not just the Lord but the Lord God. It's a way of saying the sovereign God. Amos was, in a sense, an unusual prophet. He ministered during the 8th century, during the time of Isaiah and Micah. And he ministered primarily to the northern kingdom during the division of Israel. Amos came from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he was sent by God to the north, and there... He ministered. We know that he came from a little village in Judah called Tekeo, some 16 kilometers south of Jerusalem. We also know that by profession, he was a herdsman. And so someone called him the herdsman from Takeo. He was a herdsman. One who took care of sheep and one who cared for the sycamore tree, its plant. You find this in chapter 7. He ministered to the northern kingdom before the Assyrian captivity of 722 BC. And he is viewed as the first of the writing prophets one who wrote this book. It is a book that divides, a prophecy that divides into three main sections. Chapters 1 to 2 are denunciations of the six nations of Damascus all the way to Moab. Alongside them are Judea or Judah and Israel. In chapter 3 to 6, we have primarily Oracles aimed against Israel. And chapter 7 to 9 contain five visions of judgment and the promise of restoration. But what I want us to do is to consider this theme of the sovereignty of God, particularly as it unfolds in the book of Amos. What I wanted to do is to consider not only the theme, but within the context of. Three main exclusives or sorry inclusions in the book of Amos. You find an inclusio, a pair, a bracket. First of all, in verse two of chapter one. And the second part of that pair occurs in chapter three, verse eight. You will find similar language, and I'm using inclusio here. I think that Moiter is correct, that we should not just see inclusio here in terms of precise wording, but also thematically. You will see in verse 2, thus says the Lord for, oh sorry, the the Lord roars from Zion. And you turn to chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, a lion has roared, who will not fear? You will find another inclusio in chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 14. And the third set of bracket, set of inclusio, occurs in chapter 7, 1 to 3, and then in chapter 9, 11 to 15. It is within, then, these inclusios we are going to consider the sovereignty of God. In the first pair of inclusio, it becomes... Clear That for Amos the prophet, he views the Lord as the one who roars from Zion. Stated otherwise, the prophet teaches us that the Lord who roars from Zion is sovereign in judgment. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. And the first thing that he introduces to us is that the God of heaven is sovereign in his judgment. The one who roars from Zion is sovereign in judgment. He begins this prophecy by saying the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. It's important you understand that when he says, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Two years before the earthquake. We do not know what earthquake he's referring to, but at least the the people who would have received this this prophecy would have been able to identify the earthquake that he was referring to. But he says he is a shepherd. He comes from Tekoa, and he... Ministers during the reign of Uzziah and Jeroboam II. We know that then he ministered sometime in the 8th century. And he declares in verse 2 the Lord roars from Zion. The Lord roars. Now, this is an arresting statement. This is, can you imagine? The prophet comes to this kingdom, to the northern kingdom, to the ten tribes of Israel. And the first word he brings to them is the Lord roars. He invokes the imagery of a lion. Now, for us, I think that people are more afraid today of spiders than lions. I mean, the closest we ever come to a lion is where? The zoo. We, we, don't, we don't really fear lions. We don't consider ourselves going into dangerous places. But you need to understand for people at this time, this was a shocking thing. For them, they didn't look at lions in picture books or on television. In their normal journey back into the fields, They could encounter a lion. They didn't have guns to fend them off. This was dangerous stuff. And the writer invokes this imagery of a lion roaring and depicts God as essentially dangerous. The Lord roars, from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem the pastures of the separate morn and the top of Carmel withers he defines and depicts God then as a God of judgment who will come like a fierce lion he presents the formula of judgment as he begins to prophesy against, judge, against judgment against the nations that closely surrounded Israel. And you notice formula that he uses, for three transgressions and for four. I will not turn away its punishment, for three transgressions and for four. It, it's, a, it's a poetic device. It is, a, it is a, it's a literary device that he uses. If you read this book, you will see that even though Amos is viewed as a farmer... We shouldn't look down and despise this father. He's a very brilliant farmer. The way he uses language, the kind of poetry and structure that there is in this book shows you that this man was very educated. He uses then this formula of judgment for three transgressions and for four. And all he means by that is because of their multiple or numerous acts of offense against God, God will not turn away his judgment for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. The judgments, broadly speaking, then, have the same pattern. First of all, there is an announcement of judgment against a nation. Secondly, there is a reason for the judgment. What has the nations done that provokes the Lord to judge them? And third, there is a specification of the particular judgment that God will bring against the nation. So there is the announcement of judgment, the reason for judgment, and the nature of the judgment. God will send fire against them. The first judgment that the writer speaks of is the judgment against Damascus, which was the capital of Syria. He will refer to different names and cities in, in Syria, but rarely it is against the Syrians. These were the ancient enemies of the people of God. And the writer here, at least in verses 3 to 5, speaks about God's judgment against Damascus. Why? Because they have threshed Gilead. A town in Israel with implements of, in, implements of iron. They had, they had in fact acted violently against Israel in invading the land. In decimating its people. They were threshing them with iron. And the Lord declares that he will judge them. The second prophecy as we see in verses 6 to 8 is a prophecy against Israel. The Philistines, and you see that in the latter part of verse 8. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Places like Gaza and Ascalon are major cities in Philistia or in the Philistines' territory. And here the Lord promises judgment. They are perhaps one of the earliest enemies of the people of God in the land. The Lord says, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And then the reason, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Eden. They not only invaded Israel, but they sold the people into slavery. And thus the Lord says, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. He will destroy them with his anger, with his fierceness. He will not turn back his hand from Ekron. And the remnant of the Philistine shall perish. He will judge them for what they have done to Israel. The next judgment is brought against Tyre. And if you read in the Old Testament, you will find that these inhabitants and the people, the nation of Tyre, they were very friendly with Israel during the reigns of David and of Solomon. They provided them with lumber. And David had a particularly close relationship with the king of Tyre. And though this was a nation in which Israel was was engaged in covenant relationship, they had a bargain, a truce, an agreement. Nevertheless, Tyre violated that covenant. And and so you see the reason there uh, in verse 9 and following. Why? Because they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They violated the covenant that they made. The Lord brings judgment not only against Tar but against Edom. This was a very near relative of the children of Israel. And yet they constantly warred with Israel and treated them without mercy. In verse thirteen, judgment against Ammon is announced. And here the the prophet singles out their appalling, shocking brutality their egregious brutality he points out in verse 13 for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with children in Gilead we would think that you you know, we, 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 when we see children we would think that they are to be protected and a and a pregnant woman struggling to walk, you would think that those who are weak and defenseless soldiers would not bother hurting, but they took their swords and split them open and the Lord says, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its." punishment I will kindle a fire on the wall of rahab and it shall devour its palaces god will judge the same pattern of judgment is brought brought against moab god will judge them so the so the prophet Speaks about judgment. And in, in essence, the judgment that God will bring upon the nation. Are because of social sins. Things that they have done against the people of God. They have treated them with violence. With extreme cruelty. But in chapter 2, the, the prophet turns from looking at the nations to looking inward and he says in a surprising move that God is going to bring judgment upon the children of Judah you find this in verses 4 and 5 for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away its punishment but notice that the reason for divine punishment of Judah is different for the punishment of the nations For while the Lord promises to judge the nations for their violence and crimes against the nation of Israel, the Lord will judge Judah for spiritual crimes. What have they done? They haven't ripped open pregnant women. This is not what they are accused of. But look at what the Lord says of them. Because in verse 4, they have despised the law of the lord and have not kept his commandments the reason for god's judgment upon judah it is because they had violated the covenant that god made with them they had disobeyed the law of god they have not followed the way of the lord they have not kept faith they were unfaithful to god and hence the lord promises judgment now i want you to think of this here comes a man from the south. He has a southern accent. He goes to the north. He doesn't belong there. And he starts telling the north, look, at you, look here guys, all of these people around you. Look at all of them. God says, I'm going to judge them. I, 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 I suspect that he might have gotten a standing ovation. They must have been saying to one another, this is the most brilliant prophet we've ever heard. And where were you? Where have you not been here earlier? They must have been cheering him on. And especially when he says, "God is going to judge Judah, your brother who has been treating you nicely. God is going to judge him. They must have thought this man was the best thing since sliced bread was invented. And then shockingly, in verse 6, he turns and he says, to the people of Israel, God is going to judge you. And you know, from verse 6 to verse 16, in fact, the entirety of the rest of this prophecy is going to be aimed at Israel. Later on in chapter 7, they're going to force Amos to get out of town. So apparently he fulfill the rest of the prophecy the rest of the book elsewhere but he had to leave He was; they just couldn't take it anymore why was God angry with Israel well we see that there are a number of things that they were guilty of for instance the writer will tell them that they're guilty of injustice against the poor in verse 6 the reason God's judgment will come because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They crush the head of the poor in the dust of the earth. Why? What what is what is a charge against them? It is because they had oppressed the weak and the defenseless. They had not given or treated The poor with justice. In verse 7. We notice that a man and his father go into the same girl. To defile my holy name. A man and his son are sleeping with the same woman. He's referring here to sexual immorality. But sexual immorality of the grossest of kind. Some believe that what is taking place is incest, but it's not clear from the passage that that's the case. But whatever you might consider they were doing, they were violating the command of God given in the book of Leviticus regarding sexual purity. They were not honoring marriage. The writer will go on to describe their sins not only as immorality, injustice and immorality, but idolatry. We see some of this later on, where it says in verse 8 not only have they taken and violated the rights of the poor, they lie down every man, or they let them buy every altar on clothes taken in pledges and drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. They're given to idolatry. And throughout this book you will note that there are references to their idolatry we see the same thing in chapter 3 verse 14 in chapter 7 verse 9 in chapter 10 verse in chapter 3 verse 14 chapter 7 verses 9 7 to 9 and verses 10 to 17 but they were not only guilty of immorality and idolatry they were guilty of ritualism Going through the motions. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the writer points to this. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. And so on. You will find that they were going through the motions. They were doing religious things. But there was no heart relationship with God. You see some of this, for instance, in chapter 5. Verses 21 to 23, where the Lord says, I hate, I abhor, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offering and your grain offering, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fat and peace offering. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your string instruments but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. They were going through the motions. They were bringing sacrifices. They were bringing sweet hymns to God. But their lives were characterized by immorality and idolatry and injustice. And because of that, God declares that he will judge. And so the writer begins this inclusio, In verse 2, that the Lord roars from Zion. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, A lion has roared. God has been aroused. And he cannot be quieted. Who will not fear? A lion has roared. Who will not fear? God is the lion. The sovereign one who is sovereign in judgment. But not only does a prophet depict God as the Lord, the lion who roars, the sovereign one in judgment. He depicts the Lord as the deliverer of Israel who is sovereign not only in judgment but sovereign now over all history. You see, he does not merely depict God as sovereign in his judgment of men, but sovereign over history, over life itself. In other words, who is absolute in his sovereignty. And he does this in a number of ways, in in which he shows us the absolute sovereignty of God, God's sovereign over all history. First of all, he depicts God as sovereign in his deliverance of Israel from Egypt. In chapter 3, Beginning of chapter 3, the prophet points this out. He depicts the Lord as sovereign. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying you only have I known. But this this notion of God as sovereign and his sovereignty is, Revealed in his deliverance of of, of Israel from Egypt. We see this in chapter 2. In verse 9 to 11. The, The prophet says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. I raise up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, all your children of Israel, says the Lord? What is he doing? He's Demonstrating that God is sovereign not only in judgment but sovereign in the course of history, and he points to an example of God's sovereignty in, in Israel in, in history in terms of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. I led you up, I carried you through the wilderness for 40 years, and because the writer emphasizes this at least twice, chapter 2, 9 to 11, chapter 3, 1 and following, means that for him this is significant, that the deliverance from Egypt was a sign of God's sovereignty. God is depicted, as one writer says, as a fighting God, as a God who redeems and delivers his people, who humbles the haughty and the proud, but delivers his people. And the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was a unique act in history. It had never been done before that a slave people had been rescued by their God. And he has drawn them into covenant relationship. It had never been seen at any point in history that a God had specifically rescued his lowly people from a world power and brought them into a land that did not belong to them. This deliverance then from Egypt became the defining mark that the God of Israel is a sovereign God over history. You see, and all the nations around knew that Israel was delivered by God. He depicts the sovereignty of God. Not only in his ways with Israel, his deliverance of Israel, but he depicts the sovereignty of God. And now we come to the next inclusion: the sovereignty of God exhibited in his action among the nations. In chapter three, where he is denouncing Israel, the prophet could speak of an adversary who was going to arise against Israel. In chapter three, verse eleven. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall snap, he shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. At the time of this prophecy, Syria in the north was weakened. Israel had well, had received tremendous blessings, even under wicked Jeroboam. It was a time when merchants were prospering, left, right, and center. People were living, at least the upper class, in in tremendous wealth and luxury. And in fact, the army of Israel was a formidable force; they were defeating nations. And so you have to understand the context. Israel is at one of its highest points in its history, both materially. militarily and the prophet comes along and he says there's an adversary coming things are going well now but look they're about a change there's gonna come an enemy an adversary who's gonna surround you who's gonna take away your strength he was referring to the Assyrian king tiglath peliaser who would come who would advance Upon Palestine, and who would demolish them? You see, Amos says, trouble he is brewing, and particularly the Assyrian kingdom was insatiable in its military ambition. It was just going around gobbling up little territories and making them vassals. They were just marching through the Middle East, taking over kingdoms. And bring all the kings in subject. So the nations had to be giving them tributes. Or sending them money every year. Assyria was a monster. That could not be satisfied. But if you notice the language used in chapter 311. A nation will come. An adversary will come. The notion there is that the nation decides. To take territory. But when you go to chapter 6. And verse fourteen. You see that God is sovereign, not only in history in delivering his people, but he's sovereign over the acts of nations and men. For in chapter 6, the prophet says, God speaks, but behold, I will raise up a nation against you. O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Why are the Assyrians going to come? Yes, the king of Assyria has tremendous ambition. But the Lord says, I will raise him up. I will raise him up. It is God who will use him as an instrument of judgment. See, God is sovereign in judgment. He's sovereign over all of history in delivering his people, in controlling armies. He's sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over nature. Sovereign over catastrophe. You know, in in those days, the notion is that nature was uncontrollable. But if you go to chapter 7, where we have the the beginning of the the announcement of the visions, the five visions. The prophet sees a vision of locust that will consume the crops. He sees fire licking up the irrigation that waters the earth in verses 4 to 6. What he sees then are plagues and droughts. But when you look at what is happening there, it is the Lord who sends these. Behold, chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord showed me, behold, he formed the locusts. We see in verse 4, the Lord showed me, behold, the Lord called for conflict by fire. It is the Lord who is sending drought. See, God is sovereign in history over all circumstances. Sovereign in delivering his people, sovereign over nations that march, sovereign over nature itself. And fundamentally, the reason why God is sovereign is revealed to us in chapter four, verse 13, where Amos says, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts, is his name. The reason God is sovereign over all of history and over all of life, it is because he is the potter who forms the mountain, he created the winds by his mighty power. He's able to reveal, to read the thoughts of men, he's able to make day and night. He's sovereign because he's creator who has power to govern the world. A God who is omniscient, who knows all things. An omnipotent, who has all power. Who rules in the armies of heaven and rules among men. That is the sovereign God of Amos. Yes. But I want you to know before we draw to a conclusion. That this God of Amos, the herdsman from Tekoa, this God of the herdsman. Is not only sovereign in judgment and sovereign in history, but is sovereign in grace and mercy. I talked about the conclusion of the prophecy running from chapter 7 to chapter 9 where the prophet shows God sending locusts and consuming fires. Chapter 7 verse 1. You see this third set then of the inclusive. For in chapter 7 God has promised to send judgment. He will not relent. Against Israel. And yet. God says I'm going to send. A plague of locusts. They're going to eat up the crops. And Amos begins to cry out to God. In verse 2 of chapter 7. Amos says. Oh Lord God forgive I pray. Oh that Jacob may stand. For he's small. So the Lord relented. The Lord showed mercy in the midst of the fierce judgment that the prophet sees, he cries to God and God says, I will hear you, I will show mercy. He does it again later in verse 5 and 6. When you turn to chapter 9, at the end of the inclusio, you will find God speaking about judgment A certain judgment that will come. I find verses 2 to 4 rather frightening. In chapter 9, 2 to 4. Notice what the prophet says. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel. From there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes upon them for harm and not for good. When you read this, it is speaking about the inescapability, the ineffability of the divine judgment. And you would think that this is where the prophet should end this book. But glory to God, he continues. Because this is not the final word. The judgment is not the final word. In verses 11 and following, the prophet says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. I will raise up a dynasty of the Davidic dynasty. Which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does this thing. Behold the days are coming says the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will bring back the captivity of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up for the land as I have given them, says the Lord your God. It is a prophecy of restoration. It's a prophecy of blessing. You see God is not only sovereign in judgment. And sovereign in history. He's sovereign in grace. It is not that these people. Have done anything to deserve it. It is not that they were living. Pleasing to God. But God in his magnificent grace. Looks upon them. And sees them as a little people. Lost. all. And he says I will restore you. I will raise up the tabernacle of David. I'll raise up the house of David and I will restore you and I will bless you. Sovereign in judgment, sovereign in history, but sovereign in grace and mercy. My friends, my time is almost finished. Let me make a few concluding remarks. What does the herdsman of Tekeo have to say to us? Today, in 2017, I suggest to you that this message is still relevant, still needed. First of all, this message reminds us that we must take the Sovereign Lord seriously. The real problem with us in our day and age is that we do not give enough weight to God and the Sovereign God. Some on one hand believe he does not exist, and some on the other believe that he is harmless. He is benign. He is like an aged grandfather who, you know, no longer disciplines his children. He just boys, I guess, boys will be boys. Doesn't have the energy to correct. God is toothless. If he does exist, he has no impact. And yet, the writer of This prophecy says God is a lion who roars from Zion. And he is a consuming fire. It means that those who live and will not permit God to interfere in their well-constructed life must know that God is a fearsome lion a burning fire, a God who sees and judges. And I want you to know that in this particular age we live, this is a relevant message because we see great injustices around the world. We still, we we, we see these images on television and we, we become somewhat immune to it. But we think of people in the Middle East, in Syria and Iraq, and Afghanistan who have been devastated by heinous acts. Rape, pillaging, and murder. Not just of one or two, but hundreds and thousands mass graves. People being mowed down without compulsion, without... Fear without pity. And the question is asked, where is God in all of this? We live in a day and age of tremendous wickedness. You look at Las Vegas, you look at what happened in the church in Texas. And we are very busy trying to find out what is wrong, what kind of mental health is called wickedness. need to know we need to know that there is a sovereign God who sees who takes note and will one day bring men to account. He did it to the nations of old he did it to Moab and the Ammonites and even to Israel and he will do it again at the end of the age. You need to understand that this message is for you as a Christian in a world where you're going to face injustice. We listen to the lives of individuals who have faced great abuse, who have been traumatized by the wickedness of people. And it does appear when we we are abused at work, abused by our friends, abused by our family, We, we, we start thinking, you know, there is no justice in the world. That God doesn't really care. But the God of heaven will do right. The judge of the earth will do right. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You need to know that the sovereign God must be taken seriously. He will bring judgment upon sin. But it also reminds us. That we as Christians, not only unbelievers, but even as Christians, we need to take God's sovereignty seriously. The children of Israel thought that they were God's people. And because of that, they were somewhat immune. They could do whatever they want to do. And they were saying, you know, we're looking for the day of the Lord. We're looking for God to come. It will be a day of light. Amos says it will be a day of darkness. You see, you and I need to take God's sovereignty seriously. That we are never, ever excused from living a life of obedience to God. That all of us, as God's people, must know that God always demands from us obedience. And if we disobey him and persist in our disobedience, we will also know the discipline of God. We're never exempted from obedience and reverence to God, even as his children. We must take God's sovereignty seriously. But the prophet reminds us that we must seek the sovereign God and live. That in the midst of the pronouncement of judgment, there goes a cry from the prophet, for thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, where you have set up a false shrine of worship. Nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. And the writer calls upon the people of Israel to seek God and live, and you and I must seek him and live. We must draw near to him. We must reform now. We must repent. We must turn and change in our character and in our ways with him. We must not grow complacent, but we must seek God and live. And finally, we must find security in the sovereign grace of God. That God is sovereign. And he promised that he will raise up the tabernacle of David. Interestingly, in Acts 15, James, one of the members of the council in Jerusalem, quotes this passage. When he says, the Lord has promised, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. This God who is sovereign sovereign in all of his ways is sovereign in his grace and kindness and he has promised to raise up a davidic ruler and that davidic ruler that god has raised up is christ he has given him as a light to us and he has come to us with healing in his wings we have come to know the sovereign kindness of god in jesus christ who is the davidic ruler And he rules not only for Jews but for the Gentiles. He has raised up a tabernacle, a tabernacle of David in Jesus Christ. And all, all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles, are now under the reign of the gracious Christ whose blood flowed out from Calvary and covered all our sins. And though we may be a weak and a despised people, nevertheless we can run to Christ and find sovereign grace to wipe away all our sins. We can find all that we need for our strength, for life and for godliness because of the grace in Christ. God has raised up a David king. And that king is Jesus. And one day he will come in glory. And deliver us from a world of suffering and pain. And we shall see him. And we shall be like him and with him. thank God for sovereign undying grace in Christ. May God help you to take comfort in a God who rules over all of life and says he will work all things for your good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose for Christ's sake.